a special edition of my podcast. This is David Suisa. Shmuel Rosner is with us talking about everything that's going on right now in Jerusalem and in Israel. It's been one of the most intense moments I can recall. Shmuel, thanks for coming in. Great to be in Los Angeles. So is this one of the most um, like just intense moments you can recall in the past few years? Right now, what's going on with uh, the celebrations of the embassy and then the chaos and the in the violence at the Gaza border and the decision and, and before on the that Iran. Uh, in Syria yes right well we, we knew in advance that May is going to be an intense month because of the many deadlines that we had uh, the deadline on the uh, uh, decision on Iran uh, by President Trump the deadline on moving the uh, embassy to Jerusalem and you know Jerusalem day uh, Three weeks ago, Independence Day, what the Palestinians called a day of Nakba, their day of mourning over the establishment of Israel and their disaster. So we knew it was coming, and it is indeed coming. Right. So this morning, the latest uh, count is 51 dead. Yeah, it's 52 the, now. 52 on the yeah. Palestinian side. And then the Nakba is officially starting tomorrow. And then after that, it's the start of Ramadan. And in the middle of all this chaos and danger and violence, you know, Netta Barzilai wins the Eurovision. And it's just, our emotions are schizophrenic right now. It's like a whiplash of, of feelings, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, like two, three in the morning, you see thousands of Israelis celebrating her victory at Eurovision as all these dark clouds are looming. Right, so one night they celebrate, and the next night they worry whether rockets will be coming from Gaza because of the demonstrations and the people killed in Gaza. Yeah, it is schizophrenic, but this is part of Israeli life. It, this is not new for us, to, be, uh, to have one day of celebration and one day of uh, worrying or, or, uh, or uh, uh, mourning or doing other other things. Um, so let's take them one at a time. Right. Uh, let's start with, with Gaza right now. Where do you see this going? And, and, and Israel is in a very, very tight spot, correct? Because this is not something that's easy to counteract if tens of thousands of people want to breach a, a fence. Right. So, so in Gaza, basically, you have to ask two questions. Question number one, and this is the major question for the Palestinians, and maybe for some other countries in the world, is how many people were killed by Israel. And today the count is fairly high. It's more than 50 people. So you might look at it from this perspective and it looks as a, like a disaster. The second question is a different question. How many people were able to cross the border today? The answer is zero. This was Israel's goal. Israel's goal was to show the Gazans and to make it clear that no one can cross the border because of such demonstrations or because of the fear on the part of Israel to use force uh, in order to prevent such crossings. So Israel achieved its objective to prevent people from crossing the border, but the price was high. It cost many Palestinians' lives, while many depends on your perspective. Again, if uh, uh, the IDF um, uh, was using all of its firepower against these demonstrators, you'd see 
thousands of people killed, not 50. Uh, still, 50 is a relatively high number. And now Hamas must decide whether to up the ante and risk a real war with Israel by launching rockets, by trying to bring even more people to the, to the border tomorrow. Or maybe, you know, they made their point and now they will be trying to calm it down. So we, we are still in the midst of things. Uh, predicting what's going to happen tomorrow or in the next couple of days is going to be very tricky. I mean, one of the things that always concerns me is this idea that Israel, um, you know, wants to kill Palestinians. It's really not in the interest of Israel to have headlines in the New York Times that says that Israel killed 52 Palestinians, and it's in the interest of Hamas for those headlines to happen. And I think people forget that sometimes that um, there's a media game going on uh, behind these these violence games, and the, the media game is that uh, corrupt leadership like Hamas has an interest in deflecting attention from their failures because they're not helping their people. They're really not. And uh, and unfortunately, Israel sort of is stuck in a very difficult situation where it has no choice but to uh, but to fight back. I know I'm sort of giving you my opinion here, but it's, it's really, I, I wouldn't know what to do if I was on the Israeli side. It's a, it's a tough situation. You, you know, you, you'd like to think that the IDF was using all possible measures to avoid Killing. having more casualties. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, when a country has a border and when someone threatens to cross this border by force with the uh, declared intention of, you know, uh, coming back to Israel, you know, fulfilling the right of return, reoccupying the country, you have no choice but to stop these people and if these people are uh, ready to sacrifice their lives in order to gain some, you know, symbolic PR achievement, then th this is the, the choice they've made. Right, right. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, it's, a, it's sort of a destructive mindset that's very different than protesting an occupation. Uh, this is a mindset where we want to breach a border and, you know, it's a completely different type of protest that we haven't seen before. And I think sometimes we get numb to demonstrations and we always assume that all demonstrations are created equal. This is not a demonstration against an occupation. This is a demonstration where they want to breach a sovereign border. Right. And and look, I think one, one of the... Um, Israel knew that it was going to get some criticism from international players or, or organizations because of what's happening in Gaza. But I think at this point in time, for Israel to make it very clear that its borders are sacred and that no one is able to cross these borders by force or by using violent means, um, They're willing to live with the consequences. Yeah, it is essential for Israel. And, and I, I think that for some countries in the world, it's also becoming um, essential to, to clarify that borders are something sacred. Israel is not alone in this fight. You see more and more countries around the world understanding that the need or the desire 
of people to cross borders without countries interfering um, is not something that sovereign countries can tolerate for a very long time. Now, what has complicated the picture today is the fact that the uh, official day of the U.S. moving its embassy to Jerusalem is today. And I noticed in the New York Times they were juxtaposing the images of Gaza violence with the speeches and the ceremony on the embassy which sort of further complicates the picture in the sense that uh, the Gaza violence is now being connected as a demonstration against the U.S. move. What do you think of that? Well, I think uh, Jerusalem is certainly something that Hamas can use to incite violence. This is, this is one of the excuses that such organizations utilize as they try to, uh, to up the ante or as, as they try to... Uh, to make things complicated for Israel. Look, things could have been much simpler had Israel not existed. But Israel is there. And the fact that Israel is there and that Israel wants Jerusalem to be its capital, everything Israel does is an excuse for violence. So we cannot stop the celebrations in Jerusalem because someone somewhere might not be happy with it. because. Uh, what what do what would we do next? They'll say, well, don't celebrate Yom Atzmaut, or maybe we shouldn't celebrate Hanukkah because someone is unhappy with it. Israel does what Israel does. We have our capital in Jerusalem. Um, Israel achieved a major um, a diplomatic breakthrough thanks to President Trump and his decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. We know that other countries are also moving their embassies now to Jerusalem. I think this is going to be something that will continue and grow with time. So Israel celebrates this, and at the same time, it has to stop the, you know, the violence from, from uh, interfering with the, the, these celebrations. Now there's opposition within the American Jewish community on the move, in terms of the timing of the move, that it's not connected to a peace process and so forth. What do you make of that? I understand the opposition, and I understand the people who think that this should be tied to a peace process. Um, alas, I do not see any realistic um, prospect for any meaningful peace process in the coming years. So I would not hold this back or hold it a hostage until the Palestinians are willing to come forward and have a talk. And look, look, when President Trump announced that he was going to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, he did not take off the table a future possibility of having a another U.S. Capital. Embassy in, in Jerusalem. a Palestinian capital. He did not dictate any final terms for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. So for, for me, the, um, the... And it uh, didn't preclude a Palestinian capital on East Jerusalem. That's true. Look, for the Palestinians to argue that no embassy should be located in Jerusalem is basically to argue that Israel will never have Jerusalem as its capital, not even... West Jerusalem, not even the parts in Jerusalem that were never under any sovereignty other than Israel's. So I, I, I don't see how 
these dots are connected. I think this is something that the Palestinians use as an excuse more than as a real reason for their anger. Their anger stems from other things, one of which is the fact that Israel is getting stronger and is gaining in this uh, regional game of, of power. Mm. Yeah, I call that, you know, facts on the ground versus PR in the air. And it seems to me that the Palestinians have been geniuses at PR in the air. And the Israelis have been really good at facts on the ground in terms of building a real country that's really powerful and successful with a strong military. And they've lost so many PR battles. They're, you know, the whole BDS movement. But when you look at facts on the ground... Israel is a really strong country, and the Jerusalem move is a sort of a fact on the ground. The We can segue now to Iran. Um, the facts on the ground is that Israel had really a strong response to Iranian aggression from Syria last week. Right, and, and I think the Iranians probably realize at this time that they overplayed their hand. I think they were counting on three main things. Maybe they were counting on uh, American um, weakness or declining power in the region and did not fully realize the shift from the Obama years to the Trump years. So what you see is Israel being very aggressive and getting all the support and the backing of uh, U.S. administration. That's one element. The second element, I think the Iranians were counting on Russian support. Maybe they were counting on Russia to contain Israel's response in Syria, and we do not see this uh, happening. Uh, we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, President Putin had a meeting last week just before the Israeli attack, and we do not see the Russians trying to prevent Israel from from using its force against Iranian targets. And I think the Iranians maybe were counting on Israel's timidness. Maybe they were hoping that Israel will be more reluctant to use such aggressive means. And obviously, in this case, they were miscalculating. Israel seems very determined not to allow Iran to build significant base in and around Syria. And Israel has some advantages, uh, advantage because Syria is Israel's backyard, mm -hmm. not, not Iran's. Uh, even geographically speaking, Syria is closer to Israel. Israel is definitely stronger when it has to fight over Syria. And maybe Iran miscalculated here. Now, what's your take on how aggressive Trump, President Trump, is going to be in terms of enforcing the sanctions? There are different levels of enforcement. The toughest level is if they sanction European companies that do business with Iran. Considering he's got, you know, hawks like Bolton around him, do you see him going all the way? The, the true answer is that I don't know. Uh, President Trump thus far did everything he said he was going to do. But these were mainly things that did not require, um, they were not part of a long game. They were things that he could do in a short period of time, great symbolic uh, impact 
a lot of media attention, a lot of international attention. But now we are entering the long game of having to move forward. Okay, the deal is gone. What do we do now? We, well, the know, deal is not gone. America well, it, yeah, pulled it's, out. It's not gone. Because but Europe, you know, they're making waves. So there is the question of sanctions. There is the question of pressuring the Europeans and maybe other players. There is the question of containing Iran on different fronts, maybe putting more pressure on Iran both economically and militarily. All these things take time. And the question about President Trump is whether he will have the determination... The stamina. And the, and the stamina, yeah. the patience to, to play this long game, to move forward with it. I, I think he, he made his point clear, and I think the Iranians have to recalculate their... Uh, their next moves. And they, their ambitions. And their ambitions. They understand that something changed in the Middle East and something changed in Washington, but they are also going to test uh, Trump's... It's not as if they're going to cave tomorrow morning. It's going to be a long game of, of testing Trump to see how determined he is, and if time and again he proves to be determined, then Ultimately, Iran will have to uh, re-establish re its, its foreign policy because it cannot truly deal with a determined United States of America. Well, I think Trump, in, in a way, is in a catch-22 because he made such a big deal of not investing, you know, treasure and lives in U.S. Um, the military in more adventures in the Middle East that it was not what he considered America first. But at the same time, it looks like he is getting more engaged in it. And if he wants to play the long game against Iran, he's going to have to make a tough decision of whether this is something he's willing to do philosophically, is get more engaged in something that he doesn't see as, quote-unquote, America first. Well, you, you have to consider two issues here. The, the first one is... And, and here I'm, I'm speaking about, uh, historically speaking, every American president entering office thinking that he will avoid international affairs ultimately falls in love with international affairs. It's being a world leader is a very tempting position. And for a U.S. leader to seriously say, well, I'm going to withdraw from the world, I'm going to focus on domestic affairs, I'm going to forget about the world. It is something that is easier said than done. When they become presidents of the United States and people are calling in and asking for advice and for help and for leadership, it is tempting for the U.S. president to be more engaged. Especially so, now when he has so many problems domestically with the, you know, the, the investigation of Mueller and Stormy Daniels, and there's so much uh, Michigas going on domestically, and he sees all the glory that nourishes his ego with global moves. Right, so that's one thing. The other thing is that Trump, by being so unpredictable, was able to achieve more than, more than a few things just by being himself. He did not yet have to send military forces to 
distant corners of the world. He did not yet have to, you know, bomb. Pay a price. He didn't yet pay a price. Just by being himself and by leading other nations and other leaders to believe that he might be tempted to use force, he already altered the, um, the, the playing field. And thus, for whether the U.S. is willing to engage militarily with Iran, I think this is too soon to ask such question. Because if the Iranians believe that ultimately the U.S. might do such thing, it, this could be enough for them to change their calculations and to change their policies. I think that one of the main problems with the foreign policy of, uh, of President Barack Obama, uh, uh, Trump's uh, predecessor, was the fact that the Iranians realized all along that the threat of using force was a bluff that Obama was never going to use force against Iran. With Trump, they cannot be certain, and that's an intimidating thought. Mm. And they have a lot to lose now, Iran, because they've spent uh, you know, a lot, a lot of resources the past few years building presence through proxies in, uh, in, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Syria, in Gaza. So their dream of the crescent that goes from... Tehran to the Mediterranean is really in the process of, of, of happening, and they have to make a decision of how far do they want to pull that back, you know? And, and I think that's, I'm not sure where that's going to go, Shmuel. Well, uh, we, we have to remember that for a dictatorial regime like Iran's, there's always one priority that trumps all others, and that's political survival. So the Iranian regime currently has to make a decision as to whether upping the ante, being even more aggressive, is the way for them to survive. This is the way they were going in the last couple of years. Be more aggressive, use more force, be more intimidating, make it very costly for the world to having to deal with you in the hope that this will guarantee their survival. Now when the, the situation seems to be changing, they'll have to rethink their strategy and maybe they'll come to the conclusion that keeping a lower profile, being less aggressive, uh, uh, taking back some of their previous intentions is the way for them to survive or at least to uh, to survive for the next couple of years, they can, you know, they can lower their profile for for some time until Trump is gone, until something else happens. Um, but 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 this is this is the dilemma they are facing now. Should they should they be even more aggressive and risk war and the the stability and survival of, of the regime, or should they go under the, under the radar for? for the time being. Well, this is one of the issues that's come up is by being more aggressive, they've lost a lot of support 
uh, in Iran because basically what they're saying is we're using the billions of dollars that came out of sanctions relief not to help our people, but we're using it for that aggression in other countries. We're using it for weapons. We're using it for military aggression in other places. And I think that's come out. That's why one of my friends on Facebook who seems to know a lot of what's going on in Iran said that the demonstrations that were seen in Iran the past few days against the American decision, the burning of the flags, apparently all that was trumped up by the regime to make it look like the people in Iran were against Trump's decision. But he said the truth is the people in Iran are really upset that the regime did not use the money from the sanctions relief on their own people. Look, I, I assume that most people in Iran, like most other people, most people in the world, want to have a better life. Uh, I don't see why the, I don't see a great reason for them to be pleased with the current regime. So I assume many of them, maybe even most of them, are not pleased with the regime. And again, this is- And the deal. And, and, the, deal. and the deal. So, so once again, wh- one of the things that happened in the last two weeks is that the ball was kicked back to Iran's court. They now face tough decisions. Do they, do they keep this line of operation and risk the consequences, or do they re, uh, recalculate and, and, and set a different type of, of foreign and domestic policy? It's a, it's a very tough decision for, for such regime, but to see them having to face such dilemma is, I must say, refreshing. So speaking of political survival, um, let's go right to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. His polls have gone, poll numbers have gone way up in the past week to apparently over 40 seats. No, thir- 35, 35, maybe a little more. Yeah, for, but that, that's five more than than he has today. Right. And then in the middle of everything, there are potential, the, the investigation and potential indictments that he's facing. So talk about whiplash and schizophrenia. It's like, what do you make of the next six months for Prime Minister Netanyahu? And how do you explain his popularity? Well, his, his popularity is, is fairly easy to explain. Um, he, get, he gets credit from many Israeli voters for some of the achievements that we see in recent weeks, for the uh, aggressive response against Iran and the success of, uh, of the military, for the containing events in, the, in uh, Gaza, at least for now, for, uh, for uh, convincing or helping convince uh, the United States to pull out of the uh, Iran agreement. With the Mossad's accomplishment. Right, uh, showing all the new evidence about Iran, um, the moving of the embassy that we see this week. So there, there is a lot going on that Netanyahu gets credit for. And on the other hand, you know, news about the investigations and other things uh, are now becoming secondary, uh, both because there's no news. We don't yet, we don't know what's, what's happening behind closed doors in, you know, b- between the investigators and the lawyers and the, um, so, so we don't know what's happening there. There, there. There's no breaking news 
to trump the the news that are coming out from from other places and also what we see in the Middle East is so overwhelmingly important that news about investigations are becoming secondary even even if we did have some some news so at least for now you know to say that Netanyahu has uh, uh, quiet weeks uh, would not be the the uh, proper description these are very intense weeks but his personal troubles were put aside for a while so before I let you go give me a worst case best case scenario for the next few weeks start with worst case well worst case scenario is an all-out war um, uh, rockets fired from Gaza uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon decides to uh, to jump in and uh, and use force Iran trying to take revenge for some of the uh, from some of the blows that it uh, that it had to uh, absorb from the IDF. So a war on three fronts. And w- a war on three fronts, or on two or three fronts, uh, involving um, involving um, hundreds or maybe thousands of rockets fired at Israel, and Israel having to fight back. The, this is a worst-case scenario. I don't see why this is in the interests of anyone, but such wars tend to sometimes happen even when no one has uh, real interest in, in having them. And so, in the middle of all that is Russia, which we have not talked about. Yes, and, and Russia and, you know, the response of the United States. And, and you have, you know, the, the World Cup coming uh, in, the, in early summer in, in Russia. So the Russians are busy doing other things as well. By the way, you made that comment last time we spoke. We put it in the Jewish Journal. I got more reaction from that one thing. They said, oh, my God, we totally forgot about the World Cup. Yeah, well, that's because you Americans don't, aren't, <laughs> aren't as interested in soccer as the rest of the world. But most, most world countries are interested in the World Cup more than they are in all wars combined. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that what's probably top of mind in Putin's mind right now is the World Cup. It's, it's, it's probably one of the things that he thinks about more than uh, uh, most others. Yes, so I from agree. worst case to best case? Well, best case scenario is, um, you know, events, uh, Gaza uh, uh, calms down in a day or two, demonstrations, things go back to normal, a U.S. embassy is opened in Jerusalem and other embassies are joining in. And, you know, and we enjoy a relaxing, uh, wonderful summer <laughs> of soccer and uh, celebrating and our Euro- <laughs> Eurovision victory. Okay, on that note, thank you very much. Mur Rosner, political editor, Jewish Journal. Definitely read what he's going to have to say in the paper this week, jewishjournal.com. Thanks again. Always a pleasure. <laughs>